Our passage begins that same day. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this, this very long day, it seems, in Jesus' life, where he's uh, been in debate with the Pharisees. The Pharisees have said that he's satanic, uh, that he does his miracles by the power of Satan rather than by the power of God. And Jesus has responded by saying, because of what they say, their words accusing him of being satanic, it shows their hearts are far from God. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. They've accused him of being satanic, so they, um, the ones who are meant to be the leaders of God's people, uh, have actually walked from the fold. And he's just begun to gather a new people uh, around himself. And so he turns to tell these parables uh, in Matthew 13. So Matthew 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the lake. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depths of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. Uh, In one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. It's perhaps the most famous of all Jesus' parables. And therefore, with a terrible irony, it's perhaps one that we're tempted to switch off listening to. The chances are, if you've been around church for any length of time you've heard this parable before children you may well have done it in Sunday school I guess Uh, the adults here probably have heard sermons on it before and it'd be a terrible irony wouldn't it because it's a parable all about the significance the importance of listening to God's word 
and the ways in which that can go wrong. We've seen over the last couple of weeks that, that Jesus is a very divisive figure. And so naturally the question arises, why? Why is it that when the Son of God came to earth, he wasn't more popular? If you're not a Christian, if you're, uh, you've got questions about the Christian faith, that, that might be a question you could validly ask. Surely if God wants people to know him, when his Son comes to earth, people would get it. Why is it that God the Son walks on the face of the earth And actually, as we've seen so far, to a great extent, people don't believe. You could ask the same question of of the mission of the church at the moment, couldn't you? Why is it, if the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, as Paul tells us in Romans, why is it that your mum's still not become a Christian, even though she's heard the gospel? Why is it that your friends at, at uni are just utterly disinterested? Why is it at the moment that the church in the UK is, is not exactly booming, is it? Whatever branch or denomination you belong to, none of us are thriving. Why? What's God up to? We're going to look at, at the sower and the seed and the soil. And hopefully this morning we'll begin to see uh, some answers. And hopefully what we'll see is both an explanation of why Jesus' ministry was less successful than we might assume, less popular than we might assume, but also will be set some expectations of what our own ministry will look like, the mission of the church will look like. Uh, The parable both explains the ministry and mission of Jesus and sets patterns and expectations for the ministry of the church. So let's dive in. And we'll begin with the sower. Uh, The setting in verses one to three is is down by the seaside. Uh, Jesus goes out of the house and sits beside the lake. Matthew is as we've seen already in his gospel, is, is constantly wanting to paint Jesus in the colours of the Old Testament. He takes stories from the Old Testament and patterns, and he, he draws his picture of Jesus with those Old Testament colours. As we've seen Jesus as a, a new Moses, when he kind of escapes Egypt, crosses the water, goes up the mountain, gives the teaching, just like Moses did, spends 40 days in the desert. Uh, we've seen Jesus as the son of David, a big genealogy that tells us that he's descended from David. We've seen kings bow to him. And now we're... We're seeing Jesus really as a new Solomon in Matthew 13. Uh, Jesus already introduced himself that way. If you look up at verse 42 of chapter 12, top of the page there, uh, he talks about the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, who will bring judgment on Jesus' own generation because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. I am here, said Jesus, I'm greater than Solomon. I'm a greater Solomon. Now Solomon's famous for two things, really. Uh, in the Old Testament, well, two good things. Three things if you include marrying far too many wives. Uh, but that's probably not the comparison Jesus is making. What is Solomon most famous for? Uh, the first thing he's most famous for is the wisdom with which he ruled. Uh, the book of the Old Testament most associated with Solomon. Children, I wonder if you know what that is. Which book in the Old Testament is full of wisdom, uh, full of wise words? Yeah, do you know it? Well, there's a book, there's, he's, he is a book, he's written a book. But it's called the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is written by Solomon. It begins, these are the Proverbs of King Solomon. Okay. So he's most known as a wise king. Now, why is that relevant to, to Matthew 13 this morning and the, the, the Proverbs, the wisdom that he writes? Well, when they translated the, the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, into Greek, just before the time of Jesus, about 100 years or so before Jesus, um, the Jews translated their Old Testament into, into Greek. And the word they used to describe the Proverbs was parable. 
They're the parables of Solomon. So when Jesus says, I'm a greater Solomon, and then starts teaching in parables, Jewish people would, would pick up, ah, okay. He's being presented as this wise king. And the other thing that, that, that Solomon did, most famously, was build the house of God, the temple of God. And what do we see Jesus doing here? Well, he's beginning to build the new, true house of God. Uh, just above our passage, uh, at the end of chapter 12, uh, when he was sat uh, teaching, uh, a man burst into the house and said, look, your mother and your brothers are outside. And, and we, we thought last week about his words in verse 49, where he stretched out his hands and points to his disciples and says, here's my mother, my brother, my sisters. Uh, my new family are those who do the will of the Father in heaven. And now he's gone outside, he sits down, and he gathers a, a, a crowd around him. He's forming a, a new people. He's turning his back now on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, those who were sort of in charge in Judaism, and beginning to form a community around those who will listen to his word. He forms a, a new synagogue. Now, that's actually the word that, that Matthew uses to describe the gathering of verse 2. The great crowds gathered, literally synagogued around Jesus. And he takes the, the position of a teacher in the, in the synagogue. If you were the preacher, you'd sit down. It's quite a nice idea. Uh, you'd sit down to preach rather than stand. So Jesus sits to preach with this new people that have gathered around him. A new Solomon giving new wisdom uh, to a new synagogue. A new uh, gathering of God's people. Uh, the new family he's creating. And he wants them to, to understand about his mission. Verse 3, a sower went out to sow. Who is the sower? Well, first and foremost, it's Jesus. He's talking about himself. The first thing, and it's important we understand this, the first thing he's doing is describing his own ministry rather than just sort of giving eternal truths that will always be true uh, wherever you are in the world. The first thing he's doing is describing his own ministry. Uh, we know that in part because when the disciples ask for an explanation of the next parable he, he tells, if you down at verse uh, 37 of chapter 13, another parable about sowing, uh, Jesus explains, verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Okay, the son of man is the, the sower. It's me, Jesus. So uh, Jesus goes out and sows. What is the sowing? Well, the sowing is his preaching the word of the kingdom, as Jesus calls it uh, in verse 19. Jesus' mission consists largely in him going and preaching the good news, preaching the gospel. And already I think we've hit the first reason why his ministry is so disrespected by the religious leaders, uh, so rejected by a large number of his generation. Is this it, they're saying? You're claiming to be the son of God. You're claiming to be the new David, the new Moses, the new Solomon. You're claiming to be Emmanuel, God with us. And all we see is a 32, 33-year-old Galilean carpenter's son wandering around preaching. And you're seriously expecting us to believe you're the son of God. Now, we look back with the benefit of hindsight and think, well, you know, stupid Pharisees, surely. But honestly, do you not have some sympathy with them? A man turns up from a very kind of working class manual profession. You've known him all your life. In fact, that's the charge that they make to Jesus at the end of the chapter. We know your dad. We know your mum. We know your brothers and sisters. Of course, you're not the Messiah. But, but an average guy from your hometown very ordinary, suddenly starts wandering around claiming to be God's son, the saviour that your entire religious tradition promised would come one day. The entire Old Testament would promise would come one day. How unbelievable is it going to look? 
Not only that, but he doesn't seem to be doing what you think the Old Testament said he would do. So where is the, the conquering of all your enemies that the Old Testament promised? Where's bringing judgment on all those who stand against God, which the Old Testament promised? Where's the great sort of enthronement in Jerusalem that the Old Testament promised? It's easy to pour scorn on the Pharisees, on the Jews who rejected Jesus. But, but think about it this way. What they were expecting is basically what we're expecting at the second coming of Jesus. Okay, as they read the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament weaves together things that would, it turns out Jesus would do at his first coming when he was born and things that Jesus will do at his second coming when he returns. And when you read the Old Testament at times, it's hard to distinguish them. What's he going to do when? And so, so all the things that we're expecting Jesus to do when he comes back, they expected him to do the first time. So when he didn't do them, they were thrown off. Children, have you seen, uh, if you've seen a lad in the cartoon... Um, the Disney film. Do you remember at the beginning of the film, uh, uh, Jasmine, the princess, goes out of the castle. And she puts on just sort of normal, um, covers her crown, covers her robe, just puts on a kind of cloak so people don't know who she is. And she goes down into the marketplace and she's wandering, and the guards catch her. And she says, look, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the princess, but they don't believe her because a princess doesn't wander around outside the castle. A princess wears royal clothes, not just sort of beggar's robes. Well, Jesus is the king who came from heaven and looked so ordinary that people wouldn't believe he was really the son of God. That's the first reason they rejected his ministry. And actually, it's, it's, a, it's a pattern that does continue to this day, doesn't it? It's so easy to become disillusioned with Jesus because of the lack of action, the lack of change, the lack of growth, the lack of improvement. And now we're, we're too sophisticated to say, Jesus, we're disappointed with you. So we divert it and we say, well, we're disappointed with the, the church. Where's the power? Where's the glory? It's all we're going to do. Read, preach, study God's word and pray. Let's get out. Let's change the world. Let's be revolutionary. Let's... And we get disappointed when churches follow in the pattern of Jesus and devote their primary ministry to the preaching of the word, to God's people and to those outside. But that is how Jesus ministered. Do you remember earlier on in the Gospels when uh, he's done some, he's healed some people. And so the crowds come, but Jesus has got up and gone and left. And the disciples come and say, look, there's loads of people you can heal. Village full of them. And he says, no, I'm moving on. Because I've come to preach, primarily. It's not that he lacks compassion. It's just that his primary role on the way to the cross was a preaching ministry, a teaching of God's word ministry. That's why when Paul trains the next generation, uh, Timothy, for example, the next generation of ministers. The commands given to Timothy are preach the word in season and out. Timothy's never told to perform miracles. He's not told to prophesy. He's not, really his instructions are pretty simple. He's told to teach the Bible in season and out of season, whether people will listen or whether they won't listen. Just like Jesus, keep sowing the word. It'll look ordinary. It'll mean some people will go elsewhere because it's far too dull, unspectacular, ordinary, but that's okay. And we've got to ask ourselves, are we happy to let the word do the work? Sometimes we want, we feel like there must be something, some way of sorting out my life that it will just make things go quicker. Okay, that the magic pill that will make my kids obey, the magic pill that will sort my marriage out, the magic pill that will make me 
happy at work all the time, the magic pill that will make me holy, the magic pill that will fill me with joy for the Lord. There is no magic pill. The way Jesus ministers is the same now as it always was. He preaches. He teaches the word. So that's the sower. What about the seed in verses 10 to 17? The seed in general is the message of the kingdom, but particularly here, Jesus talks about parables. And the disciples want to know, why do you speak in parables, verse 10? Why is it that Jesus speaks in parables? Well, we know the answer. We don't need to read the verses, do we? We know the answer. The answer is that parables really get sort of into people's minds. They're they're great illustrations. They help people to understand. Perhaps Jesus saw a sower uh, out on the field throwing, um, you know, the, the seed into the field and thought, look, that's a brilliant picture of what I'm doing. Parables make it easy to understand. that they're, they're great illustrations. That, in fact, is the exact opposite of what Jesus actually says. Jesus says parables have been given so that people won't understand, or at least some people won't understand. Parables, I'm speaking in parables so that some people will not understand me. It is the exact opposite of everything we were taught as kids about why Jesus teaches in parables. Parables do two things. They divide and they judge. It's a much harder word than we'd expect. I look down with me at uh, verses 10 through 17. Uh, First of all, uh, they divide. Uh, The disciples come and ask the meaning and he says to them, look, to you, to you disciples, verse 11, has been given the secrets to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. That is, those who won't come to Jesus for an explanation. It's, the main target there, I think, is that the Pharisees, the scribes, those who've throughout this day been calling Jesus satanic. Okay, they're the main they there, I think. And see how important it is to read the parable in context, not just put it out. You've got to understand this is a following on that very same day from all these rows with the Pharisees about whether Jesus is from God or from Satan. So the parable is going to divide, verse 12, to the one who has, the one who understands the secret of the kingdom. The secret of the kingdom is just that Jesus is king. He's the saviour. Okay, it's nothing deep and mysterious. That's the secret, that I am God's son come to save you. The one who gets that, more will be given. Okay, once you're on board with me, I'll give and I'll give. you'll have an abundance. Okay, you're, I'm not going to starve you of my word of life-giving seed. But the one who rejects me, even the little glimmering of understanding he has will be taken away. That's why I speak to them in parables. They divide. One commentator says that parables are like the the pillar of fire. Do you remember the pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the desert? Fiery, cloudy pillar. On one side it was light, bright, shining. And on the other side it was dark. But it was the same pillar. And the parables work like that. To those who, 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 who come to Jesus and ask for light, that the parables shine light, help us understand him, his work, his kingdom. To those who are hard-hearted against Jesus, parables just darken them uh, all the more. Parables, in other words, hide the real treasure. Again, John, you've had those kinder eggs. Ever had kinder eggs? Okay. What, what's the best thing about the kinder egg? Actually, there's nothing good about a kinder egg, is there? They're horrible. But anyway, the, it's the surprise on the inside, isn't it? You look at it and you might think, oh, it's just a slightly horrible chocolate egg. It's not, not as nice as a cream egg. It's that horrible thin chocolate. But the real treasure is on the inside. Okay, the little toy that um, is hidden away. In parables, the real treasure is on the inside. If you just look at them, listen and walk away, well, says Jesus, you'll get nothing from them. But if you come to me for the explanation, there's real treasure 
on the inside. Parables divide people. Will they come and receive more from Jesus or will they just walk away disinterested? But more specifically, they judge as well. They harden. Jesus quotes from Isaiah, verse 14. He says, look, what's going on here in their case, the case of the Pharisees, the scribes, those who reject me, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And then he quotes from Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah 6? You probably do know Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is the passage that begins with Isaiah seeing into God's temple. Holy, holy, holy. Uh, Let's just turn to it, uh, because I think it's helpful in understanding what Jesus is saying here. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is roughly in the middle of the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 6, page 571. Now, Isaiah is speaking about something that happens in his day, but Jesus says, look, it's, it's also happening in our day. So Isaiah speaks about a particular instance in his own generation, but Jesus says he was also pointing forward to something happening in mine. And as Isaiah 6 begins, Isaiah is being called to ministry. Verse 1, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, these wonderful creatures. Each had six wings. Two, with two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, two he flew. It's hard to... It's hard to be really clear what they are in the Bible. There's some sort of clues. They might be sort of dragony-like creatures. It's difficult to know. Either way, they're calling out. One says to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, that's Isaiah, woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm dead, says Isaiah. I've seen God. I live in an unclean generation. My mouth is unclean. I'm dead. But then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The altar is the place of sacrifice, symbolic of the death of Christ that will come. And this, this, this strange creature takes a coal takes some of the sacrifice, if you like, and touches Isaiah's lips in particular and says, look, your sin's dealt with. You're now a man of clean lips. And this is where it gets interesting for our parable. Isaiah goes on, verse 9. I heard, verse 8, sorry, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send? Who will go for us? I want a prophet, says God. Who's going to go and talk to my people for me? And Isaiah, who's now just got these clean lips, says, send me, send me. Here I am. So God said, yes, go. You you be the prophet, Isaiah. Go and say to this people, and what do you expect? You're expecting. Go and say to this people, go and tell them about the glory you've just seen. Go and tell them about the goodness of God, the forgiveness on hand. Go and tell them about the mercy. Go and bring thousands to faith. Go, Isaiah. You've been sent from the heavenly courtroom. What a commissioning. Go. Instead, verse 9, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Make the heart of this people dull. What's Isaiah's ministry going to be about? Preaching the truth and deadening people's hearts. Now, Isaiah's not told it's going to be boring or something. It's not, it's not a criticism of Isaiah. It is that God is using his word through Isaiah's lips in this case, not to save people, but to harden them against him. 
They've turned their backs on him. And so judgment's going to fall. I'm no longer going to be gracious to them. God's, God isn't obliged to be gracious to us at all. And he's not obliged, when he starts being gracious to us, to continue to be gracious to us. We don't have the right, for example, to have God's word taught to us. We don't have the right for him to be merciful to us. If we had the right to it, it wouldn't be mercy, would it? It would be our just rewards. The only thing we've got the right to, if we want fairness, is God treating us as we deserve. And as sinners, you've hardened our hearts. That is in judgment. And in Isaiah's generation, well, the axe is falling. And the more Isaiah preaches, the less they understand, the harder their hearts become, the more they reject God, the more Isaiah preaches, and round and round it goes. How long does this go on? Verse 11 says Isaiah, how long am I going to do this for? And God says, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, the land is desolate, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Although a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Keep preaching until judgment falls right across the land. In Isaiah's case, eventually people are hardened and hardened and hardened, and then the Assyrians, another nation, run in and, and conquer them. Your preaching is going to bring judgment, says God to Isaiah. And Jesus says to the disciples, that's what my parables are doing. Uh, Jesus says, I am going to preach in parables because of how the people have treated me. His preaching in parables is a response to the uh, the facts of Matthew 1 through 12. The way I've been treated so far means now I'm going to do an Isaiah-like ministry. The first time, there's five blocks of teaching of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. It's part of that painting Jesus to be like a new Moses. Moses had five books of the Old Testament. Jesus does five blocks of teaching in Matthew's Gospel. First one is the Sermon on the Mount. How many parables in the Sermon on the Mount? None. It's the old illustration. You might say building the house on the rock is a parable, I suppose, but not really. Most of it's just straight, isn't it? You've heard it said, do not murder. I say, don't be angry. You want to know how to pray? Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, Don't be anxious. God cares for you more than the birds of the air. It's just really straight teaching. Second block of teaching is the missionary teaching it in chapter 10 when when Jesus sends the disciples out. This is how you do mission. This is how you do evangelism. No parables. His preaching has been really straight so far. But now... Now, because they've rejected him, he's turning and preaching in parables. It's why, by the way, no one preaches in parables later. In Acts, no parables. Sometimes you hear people say, look, preachers nowadays should preach in parables more like Jesus. No, (laughs) parables are meant to hide the truth. No one preaches in parables in Acts. But for Jesus' generation, judgment is coming. Uh, He makes that point in each of the Gospels. And it's also how the book of Acts finishes. At the end of Acts 28, no need to turn to it, but at the end of Acts 28, Paul's in prison. Okay, it's the end of the great expansion of the church. Paul's in prison, and some Jewish people, some Israelites, come to him and want to hear about Jesus. And eventually, they, they disagree with him, and they, they leave Paul. And Acts finishes like this. Paul says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah, the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will, never, you will understand, sorry, you will hear but never understand, you will see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull. He quotes the Isaiah passage that Jesus preaches. Therefore, says Paul, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. 
Gospels and Acts, same message to that generation, you've rejected God too many times. Therefore, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Now, what's the point of all Other than just understanding what Jesus is saying, what's the point of all this? Jesus is preaching so that people in his generation would harden against him. Why? Partly to punish them rightly, but also with a deeper reason. It is the hardening of the hearts of that generation against Jesus that leads them to crucify him. Jesus is preaching judgment, not just on them, but ultimately on himself. He is ensuring that his death happens. He's ensuring that he goes to the cross. In that sense, he's preaching in parables for your sake and my sake, so that he's crucified in our place. As if he'd been welcomed by his generation, if they said, brilliant, you're here, great, nice to just get on living. There's no gospel. No death, no resurrection, no atonement for sins, no forgiveness. No. He's entirely just, okay? He's not unfairly picking on one generation. But as he preaches and hardens their hearts, he's signing his own death warrant. And he's doing it so that he can rescue the Gentiles, rescue everybody else, rescue you and me. That means, just at the end of his little explanation there, verse 16 and 17, uh, that your eyes are blessed if you see this, if you understand this. The Old Testament, verse 17, all these people in the Old Testament wanted to understand this and couldn't quite see fully. Blessed, and even this morning, blessed, if you understand this, blessed are you, Sir Jesus. You might not feel like you're storming along as a Christian. You might not feel like God is just showering blessings on you. But if you get the gospel, if you understand Jesus' words, it is a sign that God's favour is on you. It's meant to be a huge encouragement to us. Even our understanding is a sign that God is blessing us. And that's helpful as we just consider the last sort of part of this parable, the soil. That there's a real danger when we look at the soils that we just get hugely introspective. We start, oh no, what if I'm the shallow soil? What if I'm the rocky soil? I think I'm a Christian, but maybe I'm not. I, I seem to be living for Jesus, but maybe I'll just die in a few, you know. No, that's not the point. That The parable ultimately is the parable of the sower, verse 18. Do you see that? I've heard so many sermons on, on this passage where the, the preacher begins by saying, well, I think it'd be better to call this the parable of the soils. Like, great, but Jesus calls it the parable of the sower. Okay, so that's a better title, parable of the sower. The emphasis is on the sower rather than the soils. We're not, it's, the soils have things to teach us, but we're not meant to go so introspective that we start panicking we're not Christians. Uh, you, you know the story, the way the soil, uh, the seed rather falls in four uh, different areas. They're not four equal parts, by the way. Um, it's not as if this is some sort of equal 25%, 25%, 25%, 25%. 25%. Um, you know that from farming. Okay, if you ever been to a field where 25%, a quarter of the field is path, okay, that's a pretty bad farmer if he's got a quarter of the field covered by a path. Uh, the, the, the passage doesn't say that they're equally spread. Uh, equally, have you ever been to an evangelistic event where three out of the four people respond positively to the gospel? Because in the soils, three of the four grow. Okay, very rarely, sadly, have I been to evangelistic events where three out of the four grow. It's not talking about p- proportions. Rather, it's, it's Jesus explaining four ways that people can react. Uh, the first in verse 19, there are four S's. Satan, suffering, seduction, and success. That's the four responses to the soil. Verse 19, Satan snatches it. Uh, the word falls on, on the, the path, and Satan comes and snatches it away. Notice that 
you know, the birds are a picture of Satan. The birds don't make the ground solid. Okay, it's, not, it's not that they never had a chance. And they receive the same gospel word. Everyone gets the same gospel, but they've hardened their hearts so much that it doesn't even make an impact. Just walk away straight away. These are the people who hear it, just scoff, laugh away, ridiculous. These are the people who are on sort of atheist Facebook groups, just sort of trolling Christians and posting memes about how stupid Christians are. They're just not interested. Children, it's like when you, you, know, you go to the, the seaside and you throw your chips on the pavement and the seagulls are down and taking them straight away. The seagulls don't make the pavement hard. The, hard's, the heart is hard already, but sometimes people are just gone. The second two, though, are perhaps more surprising. Uh, they both begin to grow. Uh, verse 20, uh, the soil that is rocky ground. Initially, they receive the word with joy. They seem to become Christians. They shoot up, but... Well, what comes from this time? Suffering, tribulation, persecution. And so they fade away. Or in verse 22, uh, this is sown among the thorns. Again, seems to grow, but it's choked. In, in other versions of the Bible, it talks about um, the seduction of the world uh, rather than the deceitfulness. Both make a start, but both then slip away. Uh, Calvin, uh, who's certainly someone who believes in God choosing us and the fact that God doesn't lose us once we become real Christians. Calvin says they have a kind of temporary faith. Now, he's not saying they're born again and they lose it. That can't happen. Okay, again, this passage isn't meant to be freaking us out. But what he's saying is that as we look on, it can be the case that people start following Jesus and then fall away. Now, if you could see with God's sight, you'd see they weren't born again and all the rest of it, fine. But as we look at it, they seem to have faith. And then they fall away. You'll be able to think of friends like that. I can think of the people at Derby who we were so excited about. The one person who, in our one-year anniversary, seemed to become a Christian. They prayed at the celebration service, and it was just the most exciting thing ever. Nowhere now. Why? Well, it's either suffering or the seduction of the world. Suffering, I just can't face living for Jesus. It's too costly. Or, Or just other stuff comes in, verse 22. I remember reading an interview with some missionaries who went into a pretty tough inner city place in America. And they, they, said, they said, look, people always ask us, aren't you scared of this sort of tough inner city ministry? The knifings and crime and all the rest of it. And they said this, we're more scared of the shopping malls than the inner city. More scared of the shopping malls than the inner city. Why? It's far more likely, they said, that we'd be distracted from our faith and our faithfulness by just pushing Jesus to a side and getting on with our lives, building the nice house, developing our careers, than it is that we're going to abandon Jesus because of the crime around us. These are warnings to us, certainly. But the emphasis is on the successful harvest. Jesus sows, verse 23, and there's a great crop. Eventually, my ministry will result in fruit, says Jesus. It's not going to happen until after his resurrection. And actually, the, f- the first fruit that grows is, is that of, of Peter and the disciples. I think they are the first ones who, who produce this great crop. Think of Peter sowing on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 become Christians after he preached on the day of Pentecost. Uh, there will ultimately be a harvest. One promise to any one church, one event, one Christian union, but there will be a harvest. Okay, heaven is not going to be empty, says Jesus. Keep going. Uh, what does this tell us as we wrap up? We're to expect mixed results in our evangelism. We must stay patient and be honest like Jesus, not pretend that everything is going super well. At times, it will be difficult. One minister said that the word you've sown may remain buried until you do. 
Maybe a word for parents. Okay? You taught your children the gospel, you prayed for them, they don't seem to get anywhere, you grew up, you grew up. It may be that that word won't bear fruit until, well, you're under the ground too, sat in heaven. There's a wonderful diary extract I read from, from uh, John Wesley, great evangelist. He records a, a couple of weeks or a month in his life in May. Sunday morning, May the 5th, preached at St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore because he preached the gospel, they didn't like it. Afternoon, May the 5th, preached at St. John's, deacon said, get out and stay out. May the 12th, next week, morning, preached at St. Jude's, can't go back there either. Sunday afternoon, May the 12th, preached at St. George's, kicked out again. Next week, May the 19th, morning, preached at St. Somebody Else's, I've forgotten the name. Deacons called a special meeting and said I couldn't return. Sunday evening, May the 19th, preached on the street, kicked off the street. Sunday morning, May the 26th, the next week, preached out in a meadow, chased out a meadow when a bull was turned loose during the service. Sunday, June the 2nd, morning, preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday afternoon, June the 2nd, afternoon service, preached in a field, 10,000 people came. That's it, isn't it? He kicked out, kicked out. He's a clergyman, he's been thrown out of churches. Preached in a field, they let a bull loose on him. The mayhem. But, every now and again, fruit. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And this is the next thing we hear him say. Jesus' heart is full of goodness and love for you. His word will bear fruit. And he continues to speak. Uh, the Bible on your laps is it's not just what Jesus said or God said, it's what he's saying to you. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, literally spirit-breathing. It's not just what the spirit breathed out, but what he's saying now. In Hebrews chapter 3, uh, the writer says, as the Holy Spirit says. And you think, oh, cool, what's the Holy Spirit saying today? And then he quotes Psalm 95. Psalm 95 was written a thousand years ago. Yeah, but that's what the Holy Spirit is saying, not what he said, he's saying. The Bible is alive. Jesus continues to speak through it. And if, if you understand that, it is a sign of his grace and favour to you. So, so fill up on it. Sometimes we, we, it's like we're starving men sat at a banqueting table. Okay, we're sat on mountains of bread and meat and fruit and we're starving to death because we just don't go to the word. We have so much of it, don't we? Astounding that it's in your language. Astounding you live in an era where, where you've heard the gospel. Astounding perhaps you were born in a Christian family who taught you the faith. Astounding you had a Christian school teacher explain the gospel to you. Astounding that a friend at uni taught you what, what Jesus did for you. Astounding that God has brought the word to you, brought you into that harvest. So treasure it. Devour it. Uh, it's like dynamite. Okay? It is the power of God in your laps. It will bear fruit. As we go out to the world, yeah, there'll be rejection. But it will bear fruit if we stick with Jesus' method. Teach the gospel. Trust his word. It'll look incredibly ordinary. You'll find this at home. You read the Bible in your own. It just looks so ordinary. Nothing happens. No fireworks. You try and do some family devotions. So ordinary. Distracted half the time. Kids are squabbling, fighting, screaming, running around. Nothing special. But quietly, as a humble sower, Jesus is at work. His word is at work in our lives. He will bear fruit. He will gather you in at the harvest. The fact that he's given understanding to you now is a sign of the great blessing that will come. So let's pray that, that we continue to trust his word and it will bear immense fruit in our church and city. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that Christ has come and sown in this world. 
We praise you for those who sowed that word into our own lives. We praise you for Jesus speaking to us through them and their ministries. We praise you uh, that we have understanding when we, by all rights, we ought to be out in darkness, um, scoffing at Jesus, laughing at him, dismissing him. Father, forgive us for the times we think that in any way our entry in the kingdom has been because of something in us rather than all of grace. And we pray that in your mercy you would give us opportunities to speak and sow this word widely in Leeds. Pray for next Tuesday evening, Lord, would you bring people along who don't know you and don't trust you. And over the months to come, would the seed sown then bear fruit and bring them to faith. Uh, Father, have us trust your power in our weakness. Would we trust the simple gospel message is your power for salvation. Uh, Even though we hold it out in treasures, this treasure in jars of clay. And Father, keep us, we pray from the seduction of the world or crumbling under the suffering, uh, would the, the good shepherd hold us securely until we do arrive on that great harvest day. We ask in his name. Amen.